Welcome back to the big broadcast. Here's your hosts, Mike Martini and Mark Magistrelli. For our third hour of tonight's look at War of the Worlds, we turn to a different side of Orson Welles, the Orson who was looking for public approbation as a personality, as someone who could converse and swap gags with comedians. And this was a gentleman who wasn't shy about poking fun at himself. He reveled in it, and I think that on some level, he appreciated the fact that being known as the, what was it? Boy Wonder. Remember Wiley e. Coyote? Super genius. <laughs> well, that's how Orson was looked upon in those years, and he embraced it. He ran with it. And you'll hear that in the two excerpts we're about to play. The first one comes from the Jack Benny program of March 17, 1940. One of the big tropes that Orson had during these guest appearances on comedy programs was that the star of the show, whomever it was, was trying to somehow move into great literature, the classics. In Jack's case tonight, he wants to do The Hunchback of Notre Dame, or as they call it in the script, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. You will also hear Phil Harris make a crack about, hey, Orson, you still scaring people? So <laughs> even two years later... The impact of War of the Worlds has not diminished. From March of 1940, the Jack Benny program with special guest Orson Welles on the big broadcast. Now what? Come in. Pardon me, I'm looking for Studio B. I have an appointment. He isn't here yet. Have a seat. Good evening, Mr. Wells. Good evening, Mr. Wells. Good evening, Mr. Wells. Oh, Orson! <laughs> Come right in! <laughs> I didn't know there for a minute. I, well, I'm glad you were able to make it, Orson. I was wondering if you were Mr. going to... Mr. Stone, did Gabriel send in those sketches? The costumes for the picture will be needing them soon, you know. Yes, Mr. Wells. I received that script from the theater. Girl. Good, good. Let me see it. Here you are, sir. Hmm, it looks like a very interesting play. <laughs> well. However, to finish the second act, we'll need polishing. Gee. Oh, Orson, before we get started, I'd like to have you meet some of the members... Miss Wentworth, did you cable Mr. Miller about the American rights to his new production, the one that opened last week in London? Yes, I did, Mr. Wells. And by the way, just before you arrived, a phone call came for you. But Mr. Benny didn't get the name. Snitcher. <laughs> I was excited, Orson. That's all right, Jack, but watch those things in the future. Oh. <laughs> oh, I... I will. I will, yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, Orson, before we get started, I'd like to have you meet the members of my cast. This is our announcer, Don Wilson. How do you do, Mr. Wilson? It's a pleasure, I'm sure. And this is Dennis Day, our young tenor. Mr. Day? How do you do? Dennis, don't curtsy. He's so polite. And, oh, yes, uh, this is our orchestra leader, Phil Harris. Uh, good evening, Mr. Harris. Hi, Orson. Still scaring people? <laughs> Phil, uh, don't, uh, don't pay any attention to him, Orson. He's always like that. Oh, I don't mind. He's rather amusing in his own crude way. <laughs> crude? That's very good. Uh, by the way, Jack, where's Miss Livingston? Oh, Mary's home in bed, Orson. She has a rather heavy cold. Oh, that's too bad. Has she got a nurse? I checked on that, Bob. No soap. <laughs> oh, what coarse language. I don't know where he picks those things up. Just the same. He's a very interesting study, uh, don't you think? Oh, yes, yes. Quite. Quite. Now, Orson, I think we ought to get started with my rehearsal. Did you have anything in mind for the first lesson? The first lesson? Now, let's see. Benny, Benny, Benny. Oh, yes. Hmm. You see, Jack, the reason you haven't gone as far dramatically as you feel you should is because you've been selecting the wrong vehicles. I have. Definitely. For instance, if your goal is the Academy Award, as you say, you should concentrate... Uh, pardon me, Jack, there's something I must do. Miss Wentworth. Yes, Mr. Wells. Take a telegram to Mayor LaGuardia, New York City. Yes, sir. You see, Jack, you should concentrate on the heavier and more legitimate type of drama. I understand. Well, uh, what would you suggest, Orton? Dear Mayor LaGuardia... <laughs> Received your telegram, and if I'm in New York on the 29th, we'll be only too happy to attend the banquet. Well... However, we'll let you know in plenty of time if I ain't coming. Ain't? <laughs> oh, why, Orson! Orson, you said ain't! Oh, 
I'm surprised. Well, Jack, the use of the word ain't is sometimes permissible. You see, in this instance, by using ain't, I saved a word in a telegram. Oh. You don't have to tell him about saving anything. <laughs> Never mind you. That's all, Miss Wentworth. Yes, sir. Now, Jack, where were we? Uh, you were about to suggest a proper vehicle for me. Oh, yes. Now, the type of play that would offer you the greatest scope for emotional histrionics would be a literary classic, something like The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The Hunchback of Notre Dame? Mm -hmm. uh, you mean Charles Lawton's part? Exactly. Well, gee, that would be swell. Mr. Christian, come here! <laughs> uh, how's that? Uh, that's from Mutiny on the Bounty. Oh, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I got a little mixed up there, I guess. Uh, well, Orson, if The Hunchback is the play you feel I ought to do, let's try it out. I'm your obedient servant. <laughs> Shall we get started? Yes. Uh, Mr. Stone, did you bring the script of The Hunchback with you? Here it is, Mr. Wells. Good. Now, Jack, here's a scene that we can start out with, which I think will give... give... Oh, pardon me, Orson. Come in. Excuse me, is Mr. Wells here? Why, yes, he is. It's your tailor, Mr. Wells. Oh, come in, Max. You might as well measure me right now. Okay, Mr. Wells. Mark is down, Sam. Right. Now, Jack, I think we can take this scene where the king of France meets the gypsy dancing girl, Esmeralda. Now, let me glance at Next, a minute. Next, 15 and a half. 15 and a half. Chest, 42. 42. Weight, 36. 36. Legs, 29. 29. Come on, Sam. Goodbye, Mr. Wells. <laughs> Gee. Yes, I think this scene will be fine, Jack. Well, I'll do my best, Orson. Now, do you think Oh, I'll... Miss Wentworth. Yes, Mr. Wells. Take a memo to the tailor. No belt in the back. <laughs> now, Orson, as I was saying, do you think I ought to give my own interpretation of the hunchback, or should I mimic Charles Lawton? In other words... Oh, darn it. Excuse me. Hello? What? What? London? London, England? Oh, I think that's for me, Jack. Gee, London. Hello? Oh, hello, Miller. So nice of you to call. Yes, yes. Yes, I've heard splendid comment on your London production. I'd, I'd like very much to do it. Gee, all the way from London. I understand, Miller, that the Theater Guild has sent me a script, which I may have to do first, you see. Yes. Yes. Phil, you better play something. This may take all day. Yes. My goodness, what a busy man. Now, here's the point, Miller. I'm committed to the Guild until May 30th. However, you could arrange to hold the American rights until I'm free. <laughs> Woodpecker song played by Phil Harris and his orchestra. And Phil, I'm very glad to see that you're not a hypocrite. What do you mean, hypocrite? I mean your music was the same as always. You didn't play good just because we have a distinguished visitor. <laughs> well, Orson, shall we get started with the hunchback of Notre Dame? I'm raring to go. Oh, now, wait a minute, Jack. Oh, uh, Mr. Wells, I have an important message to deliver right now, and I wish you'd listen to it and give me your frank opinion. Oh, I'd be glad to, Mr. Wilson. Don, Orson is here to help me. Well, now, Jack, this will only take a second. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, next time you're in the mood for attempting an appetizing dessert, go to your neighborhood grocer and ask him for a package of Jell-O. You will find it's not only economical and easy to make, but comes in six delicious flavors. So be sure to insist on genuine Jell-O and look for the big red letters on the box. Wow. How was that, Mr. Wells? Very good, very good. But I wish there was some place you could bring elephants in there. <laughs> Elephants? What an imagination. Well, let's get to me now, eh, Orson? All right, Jack. I see you're ready to play the hunchback. What did you do? Stuff a pillow up your back? No, no, that's this suit. I must have it altered. 
Say, Orson, I was just thinking. Of course, I don't want to complain or anything, but as I remember in the picture, Quasimodo, the hunchback, had very little to say. In fact, all he did was grunt and groan. Not very dramatic, is it? Well, now that's where you're wrong, Jack. A groan or a grunt, if properly delivered, can convey as much emotion as a whole page of dialogue. Well, perhaps you're right, although I never thought of that. Now tell me, Jack, can you groan? Groan? You ought to hear him on payday. <laughs> Phil, you're the only one I resent paying. Well, now that you've explained it, Orson, I think I can handle it all right. Very good. Then let's get started. Now, this particular scene calls for the King of France. I'll play that. Frollo, the King's High Justice. I'll play that, too. Hmm. Quasimodo, the Hunchback. That must be me. Yes. And Esmeralda, the Gypsy Girl, or Miss Wentworth. Would you care to help us out, please? Delighted, Mr. Wells. Now, Orson, I noticed in the script here that Quasimodo rings the bells in the Tower of Notre Dame. Do you want me to ring them? No, I'll handle the bell. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, and oh. incidentally, uh, J- Jack, yeah. at the uh, finish of this particular scene, you have a very dramatic speech where you tell Esmeralda not to be afraid of you. It's really the high spot of the play. Oh, well, I'll sure try and get it right, Orson. All right, then, let's proceed. We open first with Esmeralda and Frollo. Now, quiet, everybody. Quiet, everybody. Mr. Wells is about to rehearse. You have the first line, Miss Wentworth. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Let me go. Don't touch me. You have the hands of a devil. Great. For such talk, I could have you burned at the stake. I am the law. Yes, the law that drives my people out of France. You deserve it. You are thieves and swindlers. You are lazy and you live by magic tricks and sorcery. But you don't know the gypsies. I don't want to know them. I want to wipe them out with fire and sword. Every one of them. Uh, how, how was that, Orson? Just grown once, Jack. Oh, oh, I'm not twice. Now, at this point, King Louis XI of France enters the scene. Esmeralda speaks. Oh, thank heaven. The king approaches. Maybe he will listen to me. You will be heard. I will help you, my child. Your Majesty. But you must give me a good reason. They say you are a lot of thieves. Oh, no, Your Majesty. Whenever we steal, it is because we are hungry. Help us, child. Please help us. I will help you. You and your people will suffer no longer. <laughs> Go, go back to your, go back to your people, my child, and tell them that their king will see that they have food and shelter, and that in the future they shall be unmolested. For this, I needed a teacher. <laughs> now look, Orson, I don't know what's wrong, but I don't feel those groans. Maybe I ain't breathing right. Jack, don't say ain't. It's bad English. Well, for heaven's sake, you said it. That was in a telegram. Oh, well, Miss Wentworth, take a wire to Mr. Wells. <laughs> Dear Orson, I ain't breathing right. <laughs> and another thing, Orson, when do I get to that long speech of mine? It's right here at the top of the next page. Esmeralda speaks again. Continue, Miss Wentworth. Oh, thank you, Your Majesty. My people will always be grateful. Rest easy, my child, and now, goodbye. Goodbye, sire. Oh, wait, Your Majesty. Who is this ugly, misshapen creature that is staring at me? I'm frightened. That's your cue, Jack. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is I, Quasimodo. Do not be terrified of me. I am not a man and not a beast. Yes, I am human, too. I have a heart and a warmth to others. But people... Hey, wait a minute, Orson. You're drowning out my boy. Well, the script calls for bells. I don't care. You don't have to ring them that loud, do you? I'm sorry. Try your speech again. Oh, Mr. Stone, will you ring the bells this time? I want to watch Mr. Benny. Yes, sir. Uh, go ahead, Jack. It is I, Quasimodo. Do not be terrified of me. I am not a man and not a beast. The more look down Hello? upon him. Yes, he's here. It's for Yet you, Mr. Wells. New York calling. Thank you. I have a heart hello. that warms to others. Oh, hello, Harrington. Listen, Harrington, I will be the one to cause my soul is a person in an, an ugly book. body. Now, see, Harrington, you the more promised that two weeks ago. That is Harrington, this is the that last That is why I look at you. You are very beautiful. How about you come with me tonight? Oh, for crying out loud. How can I act with all this going on? For heaven's sake. Oh, Mr. Wells, your suit is ready for a fitting. Thank you, Max. I'll try it on here. Oh, the heck with it. Play, Phil. What I go through for a career. 
the last number of the 24th program in the current Yellow series, and we'll be with you again next Sunday night at the same time. Say, Orson, I'm sorry I blew up the way I did, but I would like to become a dramatic actor. Well, Jack, those things take time, but I'll tell you what. Come over to my show next Sunday. We're going to do June Moon, and there's a swell part in it for you. Well, gee, I'll be glad to. Will I have to groan much? In uh, no. <laughs> no, Jack, there isn't a single groan in the entire play. Oh, gosh, and just when I had it down pat. <laughs> Good night, folks. Jakey Cowbell. March of 1940, the Jack Benny program featuring special guest Orson Welles on tonight's big broadcast. And you'll notice at the end how they cleverly cross-promoted Jack's upcoming appearance in Jew Moon on Orson's Campbell Playhouse, but you couldn't say where you could find the program because Jack was on NBC and Campbell Playhouse was on CBS. And it's kind of interesting to me that by this point, he's still in his late 20s. And he had built this great persona, and people had great awe and respect for him. But he was not above making fun of that. I'm going to return to something that I think we both discussed in our previous hour. Poking holes. Americans love it when you can make fun of yourself. We see this today. Orson Welles was a master of media and just how to get people onto his side. Given some of the excesses of his own career, it's really a testament to his abilities. As the interview with William Hers indicates, he had relatively lax discipline, but people continued to give him money for his film productions, even though they often didn't make money. He still found a way to make these things happen. And I think part of that was the charm that you hear on these comedy episodes of the Jack Benny program and now the Fred Allen Show. Orson Welles with Fred Allen on tonight's big broadcast. I have a telegram here from Orson Welles. He's coming here this evening. Uh, Orson Welles? Well, that's the way I feel about it, too. (laughs) What he wants to see me about... That's Orson Welles! Wait, Orson, control yourself, please. Come in. Yes? Is this the microphone Mr. Wells is going to use? Well, yes. Step aside, buddy. One, two, three, walk off. Hello, Max. One, two, three, walk off. Hello, Max. Just a minute. Just a minute, friend. What is this? I'm Mr. Wells' personal chief technician. Oh, you're here to check Right. This microphone may be all right for a schnook like you. (laughs) Mr. Wells, it's got to be perfect. One, two, three, walk off. Hello, Max. One, two, three. Oh, it's okay. Fine, fine. Now, if you're... If you're Wait a minute. What's these scratches on the microphone? Well, uh, I tell you, our announcer, Arthur Godfrey, has buck teeth, and he... Well, I hope Mr. Wells don't notice it. Well, do you think I should spray the microphone with perfume? Wouldn't hurt none, brother. And throw it on yourself, too. <laughs> Austin Wells. Special technicians he has to have to go on the air. All the president needs is two logs and a boy scout. Jay, I'm getting scared. Oh, why? Maybe Mr. Wells is coming here to get even with you. Even for what? I had nothing to do with Citizen Kane. Austin Wells! Portman, Portman, quiet, please. Come in. Excuse me, I can't see a minute. Hello out there. Hello out there. Hello out there. Look, quiet, brother. please. Hello out there. What is this? I am Mr. Wells' personal acoustical diagnostician. I'm testing the acoustics. Oh, you're testing the acoustics. Yes, if Mr. Wells doesn't like the acoustics in here, you may have to tear down part of the studio. Yes. Goodbye out there. We should wreck the building for Mr. Wells, yes. Now stop trembling, Portland. I'm scared. Maybe Mr. Wells is going to beat you up for those jokes you told about him. Beat who? I have never seen a genius yet with muscles. Now. 
if Mr. Wells thinks that he's going to... Oh, now what? What do you think? Oh, wait, Chester, please. Chester. What is with this snipping, mister? Who who are you? I'm Mr. Wells' personal physician. Hmm? Yes. But what's what, what, I'm checking the air in here to see if it's fit for Mr. Wells to breathe. Well, every everybody else in here is breathing the air. Mr. Wells is a great artist. He's a very sensitive man. Oh, sensitive? Yes. Well, he was on Jack Benny's program last spring, wasn't he? And if he can stand that, he can stand anything. <laughs> Mr. Wells had a cold that night. Goodbye. Mr. Wells sure doesn't take any chances, does he? Boy, I wish I knew what he wanted to see me about. I'm getting nervous myself hanging around here, all these people. Hey, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, you fellas. Mr. Wells is stepping out of his car. Throw that red plush up to the microphone, boys. Mr. Wells is entering the building. Hit those spotlights like that incense. Mr. Wells is here. The fan fan, Sam. Presenting Mr. Orson Wells. Well, uh, good evening, Mr. Wells. Excuse me. One, two, three. Walk, walk. Hello, Mac. Uh, the, uh, the microphone has been tested, Mr. Wells. Good. Hello out there. Hello out there. The, uh, the acoustics have been checked, Mr. Wells. Good. <laughs> the, air, the air has been improved. Very good. I'm a busy man. Well, I know him. I'm uh, very happy to be here on the Philip Morris program this evening. <laughs> that was Friday night. Oh, yes. What night is this? Sunday. Oh, yes. This is the Texaco Star Theater. My name is Allen. Fred Allen? Yes. How do you do, Mr. Allen? Mr. Wells, I'm thrilled. Naturally. I'll come to the point, Mr. Allen. Last year on your program, you said several derogatory things about me. Oh, I say, uh, you were, you were, you haven't met Portland yet, have you, Mr. Wells? She's dying to meet you. Portland? Yes? Portland, this is Austin Wells. Hello, Portland. What's the matter with that child? Is that a shriek? No, it wasn't a shriek. She has asthma. It's pitched a little high. <laughs> well, let's get down to business, Mr. Allen, about those derogatory remarks. Well, I know... Do you that... remember what you said about my home in Hollywood? No, I, I don't recall. Perhaps I can refresh your memory. You were talking about those trick doorbells they have out in Hollywood. Oh, those fancy chimes effect. Yes. You said when a person rang my doorbell, 16 peacocks flew out of the transom, 21 guns went off in a salute, and I came out of four doors simultaneously. <laughs> well, I don't... At that time, you were discussing Hollywood Victory Garden. What was it you said? Well, I just said that all you did was go out to your backyard, point to the ground and say, Grow, and 14 acres of corn sprang up. Well, that was last year. I'm, I'm here to speak to you about this year. Mr. Wells, believe me, I haven't made a single crack about you this year. What's the matter, Fred? Don't you like me anymore? You're not mad, Austin? Not at all, Fred. I enjoy a good laugh. <laughs> well, as anybody. Well, Austin. <laughs> We're all alone. This, but... <laughs> this is a great surprise to me. Why, Fred? Well, I always pictured you as a man from another planet. A genius, a legend in the making. And here you are, joking and laughing with little old egg-laying me. Fred, I, I wish somebody would do something about this Superman myth the public has swallowed about me. It's embarrassing. After all, I'm just an ordinary guy. I'm paid well, I know. Uh, you're paid to say that, so thank you. I know. I know, Austin, but your early life has been shrouded in mystery. Now, if people were only told something about your childhood... Well, what's there to tell, Fred? I was born in Chicago. Like any other kid, I went through grammar school. Age of five, I entered Northwestern University. <laughs> Five, you entered college? 
as a sophomore, I skipped the freshman year. My college days were uneventful. I majored in Esperanto. I belonged to the Glee Club, and at fight nights, I used to sing duets with myself. You, uh, you sang duets all alone? Yes, yes. I forgot to mention it. Until I was 12, I had two heads. Uh, two heads? I was like thousands of other kiddies running around Chicago in those days. Well, I got out of college at seven. Magna cum laude. I uh, hang or hung around Einstein a while, and we hissed one day over a bit of calculus, and I rejected Einstein's theory and went into the theater. And the rest, of course, is history. Oh, it's been nothing fresh. I've had a little success with theater radio pictures. Does that mean I'm a genius? I wear the same clothes as other men. I eat the same food. Like any ordinary guy who works hard, my feet hurt at the end of the day. Well, no wonder trying to squeeze 14 toes in an ordinary pair of <laughs> But uh, tell me, Austin, are you back from Hollywood to do a play? No, Fred, I'm going back into radio for the Lockheed Company. That's really why I wanted to talk to you tonight. Oh, about your uh, new program? Yes, I want you to appear with me in my first play. Me? Awesome, Gad. This is an honor, man. What is your... <laughs> what is your first play? We'll do Victor Hugo's great story, Les Miserables. You will co-star with me. Just you and I do the entire play? Yes, it will be 50-50. I'll play Jean Valjean. And I? You will play the French detective Javert. Javert, eh? Je suis Zillard. Oh, uh, you speak French, Fred? Just enough to get out of Rumpelmayer's, Austin. Just enough to get out. Oh, that'll help a lot. Now, if we can rehearse a minute, we'll run over the play here before I go. All right. We'll present our co-starring epic lady, Miserables, immediately following a short selection by Mr. Goodman. Alan and Wells. Gosh. Or, uh, Wells and Alan. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Wells and I present our dramatic highlight of the evening. Are you, uh, are you ready, Austin? Yes, Fred, you have your part. Yes, I, uh, frankly, I must confess I'm a little nervous. You'll be all right, Fred. You're with me in every scene. We're, uh, co-star. Oh, yes, everything's 50-50. Well, how does the play start? I do the narration. Oh, I see. Hey, Mr. Victor Hugo's immortal story of a soul transfigured and redeemed through suffering. This is an Orson Welles production. Radio version of Les Miserables prepared by... Orson Welles. Directed by... Orson Welles. Starring Orson Welles. During Orson Welles' presentation of Les Miserables, Mr. Welles will be assisted by that sterling dramatic actor of stage, screen, and radio. Hold it. Now, wait a minute. Hold it. Wait a minute. Something or... wrong, Fred? Well, all I've heard so far is Orson Welles. <laughs> now, after all, if I am co-starring with you, at least my name should be mentioned here. Well, I announced you, Fred. The music cut in too quickly. Well, now, watch that, Mr. Goodman. You're over-anxious tonight. <laughs> I'm in this play, too, don't forget. I'm, I happen to be the co-star tonight. I wish you wouldn't be so impulsive, Fred. Layman's around is the story of two men. Jean Valjean, the hunted convict, and Javert, the merciless detective. I'm Javert, and you are Jean Valjean. That's right. Each character is equally important to the story. It's 50 50. 50 all right. Let's now, the go. first scene is a dingy garret in the slums of Paris. As the story opens, I am hiding out. I think I've escaped you. As we first see Jean Valjean, he is soliloquizing. <laughs> At last, Jean Valjean, you are safe. There is no cause to fear. This Javert who has hounded you so long. Javert, your nemesis, that merciless bloodhound, always in pursuit of you, is finally thrown off the track, completely baffled. <laughs> oh, hark. A sound upon the stairs. Footsteps. Those same plodding footsteps. Javert. What is to be done? Ah, this window. Javert, Javert will never be taken. Goodbye, Javert. We we start the second scene now. We? We? 
Never mind the second scene. What about that first scene? It was 50-50. But you took both 50s in it. That's ridiculous, Fred. What stole the entire scene? Well, what? Well, it was that knock on the door. And who knocked on that door? Javert. Javert. I play Javert. You motivate the entire story. If you hadn't knocked at the door, I'd still be in that garret. We'd have no play. Oh, I didn't realize. In the second scene, you dominate the whole thing. I'm just a foil. Oh, a foil. Well, that sounds good. What is the second scene? It's years later. Uh This time, you, Javert, have me trapped. Cosette Obatu, a demi-monde, is concealing me in the back room of a bistro. I, Jean Valjean, am pacing up and down. Jean, will you stop pacing? Toujours up and down. This is the end, Cosette. Miss Awell to freedom. Instead of liberty, waits the galley crew, the iron collar, the chain of his feet, the teeth, the dungeon, the plank beds, all the horrors I know so well. To submit morning and evening to the hammer of the roundsman who tests the fetters. Time is short. The net is tightening. Javert! Quick, Jean Valjean! Through this trap door! Merci, Cosette! Jean Valjean will never be taken again! Au revoir, Javert! Oh, now you're over. Hold it now. You're overdoing it. Fred. Oh. Fred. You are magnificent. You stole that scene right from out from under my nose. I stole the scene again? Yes. That's suspense, man. What suspense? All I've seen Javert played a hundred times. The theater guild, the Grand Guignol. Eddie Dowling has played Javert. But I've never heard of Javert get the tone out of that police whistle that you got tonight. Now, look, Austin, I don't want to hog the whole thing. But in two acts, all I've done so far is knock on a door and blow a whistle. Now, after all, I'm an actor. I'm not a sound man. When do I get to read some lines? The next scene is all yours, Fred. Oh, good. Your speech is the climax of the entire play. Well, now we're getting someplace. What's next? On this final scene, you trail me through the sewers of Paris. Oh, the sewers. You finally corner me single-handed, and now we stand face to face. I am just a few words. Then you speak. I speak. Well, that sounds good. Let's go. Montu. Alone in the sewer. Wrapped like a rat who nightly crawls through the hideous muck of the city. The gloomy darkness, this narrow archway above me head. These two slimy corridor walls. Ah, oh. But hark, that sloshing through the muck. Javert. At last you cornered me, Javert. Don't talk, Javert. Before you seal my doom, I would speak for the last time. You will never take Chauvel to our life, Javert. <laughs> the water in the sewer is rising, Javert. I am six feet nine. You, Javert, are five feet two. The water rises, Javert. There is no turning back. The water, higher, higher. Now, Javert, you have Chauvel to your mercy. Pronounce my doom. Speak, Javert. Speak. The Fred Allen Show, even though it was the Texaco Star Theater back then, featuring Orson Welles, directed by Orson Welles. That is classic. I'm sorry. That's very funny. That was. And he's enjoying every moment of parodying, you know, the supersized ego that he was supposed to have. And probably did in real life. Well, we do have one more segment to play tonight. I thought it might be a good idea to round things out by ending more or less the way we started with author H.G. Wells, writer of the original War of the Worlds, and Orson Wells, the man who, for all intents and purposes, made it a broadcasting classic. In 1940, H.G. Wells and Orson Wells were brought together in a Texas radio studio, and this was, I believe, the first time that they actually encountered each other on the air. Kind of an interesting once-in-a-lifetime pairing, when H.G. Wells met Orson Welles. Here they are on tonight's big broadcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Charles C. Shaw speaking. KTSA is honored this evening by the presence in our studios of two great men, the Honorable H.G. Wells, world-famous British historian, author, and student of world affairs, 
and Mr. Orson Welles, the genius of stage, screen, and radio. This is the first time that Mr. H.G. Wells and Mr. Orson Welles have appeared together. In fact, they met for the first time only yesterday here in San Antonio. But this is not the first time that their names have been linked. Two years ago, Mr. Orson Welles adapted Mr. H.G. Wells' book, War of the Worlds, for radio purposes. And you know the rest. Revising the story somewhat, Mr. Orson Welles depicted an invasion of the United States by men from Mars. Although he explained it numerous times during the program that it was fictitious, the country at large was frightened almost out of its wits. Men called radio stations, offering to enlist against the Martians. Others were panic-stricken. The realism of the production, frightening though it was, was a tribute to Mr. Orson Welles' genius. And thus the name of Welles, H-G-W-E-L-L-S and Orson W-E-L-L-E-S, became linked. Mr. H.G. Wells, in the opinion of many, is the world's most famous man of letters. He has come to San Antonio to address the United States Brewers Association, and Mr. Orson Wells is here for a town hall forum address Wednesday. In this meeting of great minds, I feel rather inconspicuous, and the less I have to say, the better you listeners will like it. But first, could I interest you gentlemen in a discussion of Mr. Orson Wells' broadcast of Mr. H.G. Wells' book, The War of the Worlds? Turning the meeting over to us, sir? I am for the moment. <laughs> He's turning it over to us. Well, I've had uh, uh, a series of the most delightful experiences seemed to, since I came to America. But the best thing that has happened so far is meeting my little namesake here, Orson. <laughs> I find him the most delightful uh, uh, carrier. He carries my name and an extra E that I hope he'll drop sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> See no sense in it. And uh, I've uh, known his work before he made this sensational Halloween uh, spree. <laughs> Are you sure there was such a panic in America or wasn't it your Halloween fun? <laughs> I think that's the nicest thing that... Uh, mm. that uh, uh, a man from England could possibly say about the men from Mars. Well, because, uh, uh, Mr. Hitler made a good deal of sport of it, you know, and sp actually spoke of it in the great Munich speech, you know. Mm. And there were floats he, in Nazi parades. Much showing. else to say. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> much else to say. Mm. And it's supposed to show the corrupt condition and decadent uh, uh, state of affairs in democracies that the War of the World went over as well as it did. I, I think it's very nice of Mr. Wells to say that. Uh, not only I didn't mean it, but the American people didn't mean it. I, that was our impression in England. We had articles about it, and people said, have you never heard of Halloween in America when everybody pretends to see ghosts? <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well, the, uh, there was some excitement caused. I uh, really can't uh, belittle the amount that was caused, but I think that the people... Uh, Got over it very quickly, don't what you? What kind of excitement? Mr. H.G. Wells wants to know if the excitement wasn't the same kind of excitement that we extract from a uh, practical joke in which somebody puts a sheet over his head and says, boo, I don't think anybody believes that that individual is a ghost, but we do scream and yell and, and rush down the hall. Mm. And that's just about what happened. That's, that's a very excellent description you, of what... You aren't quite serious in America yet. <laughs> you haven't got the war right under your... Uh, Chins, and the consequences you can still uh, play with ideas of terror and conflict. You think that's good or bad? It's a natural thing to do until you're right up against it. So it ceases to be a game. And then it ceases to be a game. Well, now, uh, here's a thought. Some of Mr. H.G. Wells' writings are termed fantastic, and a few years ago, well, might they have been conceived such? The shape of things to come, which told of a long Indonesian war, was such a fantasy. But, Mr. Orson Welles, do you think that it's so fantastic in view of today's events? It certainly is not so fantastic. And the, the one question that Mr. Mr. Wells has uh, spoken of, not only in the shape of things to come, but has uh, hinted at or directly prophesied a, uh, such a state of affairs following a, uh, a wasting war and a return to a feudalism from which uh, the world would find itself again. And uh, today in Mr. Wells's lecture, he said uh, quite the most interesting thing that uh, uh, I've heard in a long time. He said that he 
commenced just recently to ask himself if there was any reason why mankind should so uh, uh, emulate the phoenix and should so uh, get itself out of uh, its mess. He proposed a couple of, uh, of uh, solutions, but he did admit that there, that there was a possible excuse for a gloomy point of view and that it would be good to be realistic about it and not to uh, dismiss the gloomy point of view anymore. Perhaps uh, uh, the time had come to look ahead since the future, uh, Mr. Wells's future, which we've always adored and never uh, really understood, is suddenly upon us. Mm -hmm. And we are living right now in that uh, famous H.G. Wells future, which we all knew about. Now, before we get away from this microphone, tell me about this film of yours that you've been producing. Uh, your producer, aren't you? Your right. art director, your everything. Well, Mr. Wells, What's the film called? It's called Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, yes. Citizen. Not C-A-I-N. No, K-A-N-E. And this Kane. is, of course, the kindest, oh, yes. the most gracious possible thing to do. Mr. Wells is... Uh, making it possible for me to do what in America is spoken of as a plug. <laughs> and uh, he understands do this fine old American I custom. don't understand these words, yes. yes. You understand the, uh, uh, the value, however. Mr. Wells wants me to tell you that uh, I am, have made a motion picture, and he is kind enough to ask me a leading question concerning it. I'm it, looking forward to it. <laughs> very kind, sir. It's a, it's a new sort of motion picture with a new... Uh, method of presentation and a few new uh, technical uh, uh, experiments, a few new new uh, methods of telling a picture, well, not only from the point of view of writing, but of showing it. If I don't uh, misunderstand you completely, I think there'll be a lot of jolly good new noises in it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I think there'll be jolly good new noises are what the motion pictures could, stay, could uh, well afford these days. I, I hope you're right, and I hope there are some jolly good new noises. I can think of nothing more desirable in motion pictures. I'm all for some really good new noises. Wasn't it you, Mr. Orson Welles, that uh, presented for the first time in modern times plays without scenery and settings in your That's Julius right, Caesar? That's right, yes. And they, well, they were not... Well, now, uh, there's no such yes. thing as a play without settings because there's no. got to be something behind an actor and you've got to look at something. Very simple settings. I, I had an extraordinary experience once. I saw... Uh, uh, Ellen Terry's son, what was his name? Ellen Terry's son? Yes, his a... production of Hamlet. You mean Gilgood? Uh, no, no, no. Gilgood is a relation of the Terry's. No, no, no. Um, never mind his name for the moment, but I saw Hamlet produced in Russian in Moscow. Oh, the Stanislavski production? Of no, the... no, the... Uh, uh, this I know nothing about. I, I'm sorry. Awfully sorry. Uh, yes. And that was done with screens, don't you know, That's and right. nothing else. And it was done in Russian. I know my Hamlet pretty well, and all the time I thought I was listening to the English play. Do you understand that? Yes. Yes. That was a great show. What do you think the effect, uh, what effect do you think this war, or any war, will have or is having on the arts, principally the theater and literature? Well, now, in a country that is fighting hard, as Britain is doing, the arts go into a temporary rest. Uh, they, but I think if we come out of the war, then there will be great renaissance because we shall have a greater sense of reality, less uh, respect, don't you know, for tradition, and the uh, old-fashioned way of looking at things. Oh, I agree so much. I think it, may, it means... If Great it purge, I if think. If it doesn't war. mean disaster, this war, it may, means a tremendous renaissance of the human mind. A new approach to realities in, the, in terms of the arts. Of course, now in America, we go through the worst possible stage in the arts because we are not ourselves engaged in the war, and the war is, is only a kind of conception in the newspapers for us. 
but it has affected us sufficiently to degrade the taste, and we're going through that, that period in, during, of, of uh, mild war hysteria, which means the degradation of standards in the arts, particularly in the theater arts, but a, a tremendous boom in the financial aspects thereof, as if people are rushing into the theaters, but they're rushing into the wrong theaters to see the worst kind of pap. Uh, after we get into the war, and if we do, and after we get into uh, uh, the kind of trouble that we're bound to get into if it isn't precisely the war that we're speaking of now since the war becomes a new war every week, but after we get into whatever it is we're going to get into, the same thing will be true of us, I think, and uh, our arts will go into uh, a temporary decline. But again, uh, any sort of success following this war must make a whole new uh, approach to the arts possible. It's always a great purge, I think, in, oh. in, the, in the visual arts and in the theater arts, particularly in letters. What happens to our democratic peoples is first is the shock. Yes. And then after the shock, they pull themselves together. Mm -hmm. And we've had the shock, and now I hope we're going to pull ourselves together. And that means politics, war, uh, art, everything become more rational, more powerful. We should take a step forward unless we take a step backward and go over the precipice. Do you think that that shock is due to a lack of discipline in a democratic country as opposed to a totalitarian country? Oh, no. Uh, oh, good. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so great. Uh, discipline is a word for children and, uh, you know, people who have to salute and that sort of thing. Grown-up people do want to live freely and largely. Therefore, any group of gangsters who get together and give themselves wholly up to getting power have a temporary advantage. Mm -hmm. You know, you've been through the whole of this thing on a small scale with uh, uh, your, your gangsters here who've had for a time a reign of terror. They terrorized... And a very districts. real discipline within their own reign. Yes, yes, discipline yes. in the word. Mm -hmm. Law of the pack. Fear discipline in their own uh, ranks. But directly your democracy said, this is too serious and we can't let it go at that. You dealt with them. We have to deal with this air... Uh, assault on civilization now, because it all comes through the air, you know. Mm. And until we've got a world control of the air, this sort of thing may come back. That's the thing that we have to stop. Well, do you think that uh, this uh, faculty that makes people get shocked, or this trait that makes them get shocked, is a sign of adulthood as compared with a more childlike attitude on the part of those who are under totalitarian I, rule? I think adult people want to live their own lives, try experiments with life, do this and that and the other thing, and therefore any sort of criminal who chooses to uh, concentrate on terrorism gets a temporary advantage. And you can't cure that. The grown-up world uh, is at the mercy of the criminal until you've developed a method of dealing with the criminal. But the method can be developed. Naturally, there's a momentary period of surprise because we're not, by the very nature of our way of life, we're not equipped to deal uh, with what is foreign to our conception of a way of life. So that the, uh, the first shock must necessarily be very great. If you have a happy village of people doing this, that, and the other thing, and you get a dangerous lunatic who begins to go about terrorizing the whole village, it's a great nuisance, but you have to pull yourselves together and suppress that lunatic. That's what civilization has to do now. And for a because moment, Speaking of your visit to the shop for a moment, of course, there is a, everybody's merely appalled. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and during that period of, 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 of mere uh, shock and mere terror, uh, the criticisms against democracy sound very valid indeed. But uh, we know that uh, Mr. Wells's community is going to uh, pull itself together and going to deal with this lunatic. Well, do you think, Mr. H.G. <clears throat> Wells, that 
Britain's reverses, early reverses, may have been due to that initial period of uh, shock, and that now they're over I think that our people could not believe that a whole nation could go, grow so mad as the uh, Nazi socialists did. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they said, poor dears, they must be dreadfully distressed about something, give them something, appease them, what is the trouble? But you see, the more they appease, the more yes. frightful the attack. Because you can't appease paranoia. Every, every uh, psychiatrist uh, uh, in the world, in any court of law, can tell you that the way to deal with paranoia is not by appeasement. And, uh, but we didn't have any psychiatrists in, uh, in uh, power politics at the time. We simply had sort of sort of uh, goodwill and uh, futile humanistic world. Well, this thing has to be settled now. It has to be the one dread that I have is appeasement. More uh, some attempt now to call this fight off before mm. it's fairly finished. You back up the British because we can beat the National Socialist. We don't want a single American to die as an American soldier in Europe. But don't get in the way when it comes to a settlement. <laughs> don't let them off, because uh, this has to be a decisive fight. And at yeah, the yeah. end, we've got to have all the world disarmed so far as the air goes. There will be no peace until there's a complete control of the air by the civilized forces in the world. Who do you include as among the civilized nations, Mr. Mill? Well, the three nations that can put over peace in the air at the present time are America, the British system, and Russia. And if you can make friends with Russia, Russia is a very difficult, fickle country, and you may find a lot of difficulty in making friends. But if you can work right, somehow with the Russian, then you can now make peace in the air for all time. Wouldn't you have to appease Russia? Why appease Russia? Why appease Russia? She's I don't got understand such a question. Well, to recognize no. her conquests. What conquests? Of the uh, Baltic countries and now, listen, Wait a minute. Listen, <laughs> listen to that. We, we English have had a lesson about that. We let the Germans push their airports right up to the English Channel. We let them put guns that can fire into Dover. We had our time over again. We should certainly have bombed Berlin when we were right up on the French frontier. And we should have taught them the mischief of trying to make war in somebody else's country. Now, the Russians have done nothing but push back the German bases so that they can't do a blitzkrieg on uh, Moscow. This has been and misrepresented as imperialism. Which is, of course, absurd, because if Russia was bound for imperialism, which is inconceivable anyway, considering the internal, internal economy of Russia, they certainly would have behaved in a very different way. How would America behave if you had, uh, um, if you had guns commanding the approach to New York on Staten Island? If you had a brave little foreign country in New Jersey? If you had... Uh, Nazi bases creeping up through the French colonies, creeping up through uh, South America, so that presently it would be quite an easy job to bomb New York. Would America wait for it? Is America waiting for it today? No. What you are doing as fast as you can is pushing back any possibility of getting bomber planes over America. By that you refer to our air bases yes. in the Caribbean and the Atlantic. Yes, and in uh, preventing any settlement of an air base anywhere that can threaten. That's the obvious policy. Have the Russians done any worse than that? Aren't the English now bitterly repenting of 
that they didn't bomb Berlin when they could have bombed Berlin quite easily, and that they've allowed the German bases to uh, uh, creep forward so that every night we get the raiders over the mouth of the Thames and that sort of thing. You see, learn from us. Mm-hmm. If you learn from us, you not only find your own policy clear, but you also see the reason the good, sound, common sense of the, of the Russian action with regard to the Neva and with regard to the Kurzon line. Well, Mr. Orson Welles, don't you agree that the press and other uh, mediums of public opinion in this country have painted the Russians pretty much villains? Oh, naturally, and appallingly so. We should I mean, the foreign correspondents working on American uh, wire services are emotionally unprepared to deal sensibly and uh, in a neutral and, and, uh, and decent way about the, about the whole Russian business. And the, the press represents, for the most part, vested interest in America, and therefore the whole Russian picture has been, uh, has been so falsified as to uh, uh, make it almost impossible to discuss with the ordinary intelligent American the Russian position. It's a great tragedy because perhaps the, perhaps the hope of the world is some sort of alliance with Russia. I'm not speaking of a communist revolution. Understanding. But an understanding with an understanding with the aims of Russia, no matter how much we may quarrel with the administration of, 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 of uh, the Russian ideal. After all, it's not too foreign from the democratic ideal. But the democratic ideal has chosen to divorce itself from this. In the, and, and this choice has been made by vested interest, by people uh, who, who shake with terror at the mere mention of any sort of, uh, of uh, equity in the... In, world affairs. Well, didn't you say today, Mr. H.G. Wells, that uh, Russia was uh, considerably Tory even yet? They haven't... Uh, Use the word Oriental Toryism, which is a very Oriental interesting Toryism. phrase and needs a good deal of... Uh, but all uh, the same, they have every interest in the world in coming to uh, some arrangement for the suppression of air war. They don't want it. They've got much too big a part of the earth to develop themselves, to want territory in Europe. The administration of, of, the, of, of the socialist state in Russia is, after all, none of our affair. We may criticize the Ogpu, and we may, not like the, uh, we may not like the personality or the methods of Mr. Stalin, but the, the fact remains that there is happening in Russia something which is in the direction of progress. We cannot deny progress. If we do, we step backward, and stepping backward is suicide. Mr. Ace, you also understand you've written a new book. Yes, I've uh, Very great book. put a lot of... Orson's a good fellow. <laughs> <laughs> Sensible, too. <laughs> Discerning, yes. <laughs> yes. No, that's, that's true. yes, I've tried to do the mental attitude of very, two very clever young people, two university uh, students, uh, towards the world how the world looks to them and what problems they have to face. It's a book for the young, about the young. And it's a very old. young book. It's very, thank you. And what is the name I, of your book? I think book for a man that I've only met <laughs> in two days, Orson's a very loyal cousin of mine. <laughs> <laughs> what is the name of the book, Mr. Wells? Babes in the, the, the Dark... Babes in the Darkling Wood. Is Not it? Babes in the Wood, but Babes in the Darkling Wood. Because is it it's realistic just... or any fantasy in it? Oh, no, it's quite realistic. They just uh, talk away at their troubles. Most their of problems. Mr. Wells' novels are realistic, but it's, uh, it's a misconception. It's... Uh, assume that a man who could say that the air arm of a country is the most important thing about a country in the future, that such a madman must certainly write nothing but fantasy. Well, well, gentlemen, it's with great reluctance that I have to say our time's up. This has been one of the real pleasures of my life. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to Mr. H.G. Wells, the famous British historian and author, and Mr. Orson Wells, the theatrical genius, who met for the first time in San Antonio yesterday and have honored us with their presence tonight. To you, Mr. H.G. Wells, and to you, Mr. Orson Wells, my heartfelt thanks for your kindness. KTSA San Antonio. Orson Wells and H.G. Wells together winding up our big broadcast this evening. Well, it's been quite an event. A very-
very special look at War of the Worlds, the most famous broadcast of all time, and we're glad you could join us. We'll be back with our regular programs next week. Till then, I'm Mark Magistrelli. And I'm Mike Martini. Tune in again next time for the big broadcast. (laughs) 